0: If you have your Bibles, open them up. or ready for Nehemiah chapter 3 today. And then um, just by kind of way of running start, there's, we're studying the gates. And so when we get a chance, we get them pictures up of the, the gates. And then we'll go to the, the, the valleys in a minute. But I want to see the gates first. But we, um, um, we have these 10 gates. Now, we remember that Nehemiah, 445 B.C. is where we are, 445 years before Christ. We're coming to a time, this is the very end of the history of your Old Testament. And even though this book goes way back and it's before Daniel and all the minor prophets and all those things, this is the last bit of of history we have in our Old Testament, 445 B.C. By the year 400 B.C., just 45 years from where we are in the Scripture today, um, the Bible says that for 400 years, there was a 400-year silence before Christ, the 400 um, silent years. So we are right there. So we're 45 years before the 400 years of silence and then the birth of Christ. Um, chronologically in our Bibles as we study Nehemiah, Nehemiah was in Babylonian captivity. He, he came much later. Um, Zerubbabel was the first one that went back and then Ezra. And then years later, Nehemiah comes back with the specific purpose of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and rebuilding its gates. And so, um, so we're studying these walls. Now, this chapter, normally, I would have just kind of skipped over it. I wouldn't have found a ton of meat in this chapter. Um, I told you guys last week that normally, I, I honestly don't roll this way, but um, I, I'll, I, normally I steal from like eight or ten different pastors to make a message. That's called research. But um, when I steal from just one pastor, that's plagiarism. But this message is stole from one pastor. Um, so I didn't come up with this stuff, but it, it's pretty good. So we're going to go through it. Um, so last week, just by way of reminder, we started with the sheep gate. And remember, who the sheep, what the sheep gate represents? Jesus Himself, and everything starts at Jesus. Everything comes to Jesus. Everything in our lives and our Christian walk has to always be reset back to the altar to Jesus. And then the next gate was the fish gate, and that was evangelism. We're called to be fishers of men, and then that brings us to verse number six. And it says, moreover, and there's the gates there. Um, The two are yellow because that's... We start here at the Sheep Gate, the top or the north, and this would be east, west, north, and south. So the Sheep Gate and then moving counterclockwise around the city is the way Nehemiah built the gates. Now, what was super phenomenal to me is that Nehemiah was a cupbearer. He was at court of the king, and he's called, and he feels inspired, and he goes back, and in 52 days... He rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. He's not a builder. He's not a contractor. He's, a, he's somebody who has a call of God and the move of God, and he goes out outside of himself, and God shows up and does it, and in 52 days he organizes. And what we find is that he didn't actually do all the building and work himself in 52 days. He organized the people, and God showed up, and God put people around him to do the work, and they built all the gates. We'll start here again at the top at the Sheep Gate, moving counterclockwise: Fish Gate, Old Gate, Valley, Dung, um, all the way around to the other side. So we can just kind of leave that up for now because I think we're going to try to get to the dung gate today. And then I'll want the, um, the valleys when we get to the dung gate. All right, so verse 6 says, Moreover, Jehoiada, the son of Pasea, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the old gate. Everybody see old gate? Don't look at anybody in this room. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Now, when we think of old, we oftentimes think of um, maybe something that's ready to be replaced or something that's bad or negative. But in this context, um, the elders would um, sit and gather at the city gate. The elders would. The elders would. Now, there's a group of people in our neighborhood that call themselves elders that are very youngers, and I don't know how they figure that out, but an elder is... Actually, just that it's an elder, and the elders of the city would gather um, where they would they would meet at the gate and and, and discuss wisdom and laws and and um, Bible things and ordinances and all the things would happen um, by the elders that would meet um, in the city gates. So here, the old gate for our study today represents this one's kind of a couple of them are kind of tough. I want to get you guys to guess or try to figure out what they are, but in this one, the old gate represents truth. And, and really, what we're going to find in these in these ten gates is that each one is basically a different biblical, um, you know, standard of, of of living. Jesus, evangelism, truth, and so here the old gate represents truth. Um, is truth important? You know, it's one of the very things that Jesus claimed of Himself. We just sang a song, you know, that is for freedom. That I am set free. Jesus said that when you've been set free, um, you're free indeed and the truth will set you free. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I can remember, I was in Bible college. I you know I was post-Bible college. I was, I was teaching in the high school at Joshua Springs. I'm sorry, in our Bible class. And this concept came up of um, there is no absolute truth. It was popular for a while. I don't know if it still is. Um, and to me, I'm like, I did not even get the concept. But, but it's another lie of the world, and it's like, you know, what's true to you is true to you. And what's true to you is true to you. And I'm like, no, either the car's red or it's not red. I mean, it's not red to me and blue to you. It's one or the other. There, But, you know, this abstract idea. And, and the whole the whole, the whole, stupid thing about the there is no absolute truth, you realize that statement in itself is an absolute truth. When somebody says there's no absolute truth, you could say, well, except for the fact that there's no absolute truth. So that's an absolute truth. So there is absolute truth. Well, yeah, you know, like, it's I don't get it. I don't understand. Like it's it's one or the other. But again, it's another way that the world is used to water down what's true and, and what's the reality. And we do have an absolute truth. The Bible is the absolute truth. Jesus is the absolute truth. And the truth is important. And it's something that we want to guard. You know, it's one of the reasons why I share on Sunday that, you know, I feel like I should uh, be up with current times and watching the news and doing these things. But I just I can't do it. It, it, it just it's all lies. And I hope you understand, right? Like, all the pretty boy and pretty girl news on the TV, I don't care what it is. Glump them all together, Fox News included and all of them. They're all biased. They all have an agenda. And you're not getting truth from those sources. You know, and it's, not, it's, just, it's just not there. You just have to understand that. There is an agenda. There's a talking head. Have you guys seen the, um, the clips where they show the news stations from all over, the, all over the United States? And they'll show one in Wisconsin, whatever, all these places. And they have all the things and they're all saying the same exact words. On the same day, because those talking points come from somewhere, and everywhere in the nation, they're, they're saying the same exact thing. You know, the last one I saw was over the whole Joe Rogan ivermectin thing, and the, and the catchphrase was horse dewormer. And they showed every news around the United States, and the talking head said the words horse dewormer, horse dewormer, horse dewormer. And, oh! Because it's, it's, again, so you can't, you can't believe it it's fake the media is fake it's all fake um, and really it is it really is and, and that's the bottom line you know one of the things that we read on the 1919, 1919 Russia manifesto and we know this is true right and, and I shared it on Sunday I, I just don't understand how we could be in the position we're in and and this these politics and politicians get away with what they're doing and everybody's not completely freaking out and I'm like how is it possible there's only one way it's possible. They 100% own the media. From, that's the only way it's possible, and they and they control the narrative. And they knew that in 1919, and they began this 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 coup of, of information. And it wasn't as bad as it is now. It didn't. Not until recently, I think. You know, in the 50s, 60s, I think there was still some journalism integrity and um, to some degree in a lot of in a lot of ways. And but it's gone now. It's gone now. And the the Antichrist, the New World Order, the Great Reset, they have successfully now controlled the media. And and the major conglomerates, you know, George Soros owns a, a big portion of, of, of our news and um, and those types of names. They all own it. So but 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 it's the word of God that's truth, right? And and we can listen to the news and we can hear what's going on. But you can't listen to the news and know why it's going on. You know, as a pastor I do get calls from time to time from people and they're saying like they're seeing all the stuff that we're seeing and the stuff that we're, we're seeing that it all fits into the same vein, right? It's it's going to happen. We are going to become more and more globalized. They are going to win um, because it's preparing the world for the rule of Antichrist. It's preparing the world for what the book of Revelation says is going to happen after the rapture, after the return of Jesus, that there will form here a one-world government, a one-world economy, a one-world religion, uh, one-world military, um, um some degree, I just want to be careful, right? I'm not being dogmatic on all those things because even in the military, there's a little bit of enemies that we see in the book of Revelation. There's some, some things that aren't completely 100% under control of the Antichrist, but you still have those titles a one world government, a one world economy, a one world polit- political system, a one world um, military. Um, I, you know, on this idea of truth, well, first of all, that, you know, tr- truth is defined by God, right? And so homosexuality is a sin. It's forbidden in the Bible. It, it, it's called an abomination by God. Okay? The Bible says God hates divorce. Divorce is a sin. If a heterosexual man is having an affair on his wife, it's a sin. It's an egregious sin against God. Um, and, and these things are sin. They're sinful. They're black and white in the Bible. And, and, and again, as Christians, we, you know, we have to stand on what the Word of God says as truth. But the Bible says to, to, to share your truth in love. The Bible says to share the truth in and love. And, and again, God does not hate the homosexual. God does not hate the um, heterosexual man who's cheating on his wife. God does not hate those who have faced or been through a divorce or are going into, through a divorce. God doesn't hate them. God loves them as much as he loves you and I. But their behavior, just like stealing, just like anything else, it's sinful and it needs to be called that. But here's the deal. You know, we definitely never right, want to be those that um, stand on the street corner with a sign that say, "God hates fags." You know, I promise you, Jesus wouldn't act that way. You know, and 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 there again, that gives you and I a bad name because we we're called and we understand that we want to love people into the kingdom of God. And how can we? And, and here's and, and again, we have we're fighting an uphill battle because the way that Satan deals with it is he tells them that we hate them, we're judging them, we're against them. And so they meet you, and they automatically have these pre-recorded, pre-programmed ideas about who you are as a Christ follower and that you think God hates fags or that you would say that, and we would never say that. We would never believe that. But so, so, so then you want to come across as loving and, 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 and there. But at the same time, like you realize there is an elephant in the room, and your purpose is to share Christ. And so you don't want to, you know, so it is a fine line we walk, but the Bible is clear. The Bible says to um, share the truth in love. And so as as Christ followers, we want to love people. We don't want to do what they're doing. We're not, you know, again, when we love people, we don't, the the way we love them is not to become best friends with them, not to do what they're doing, I should say. We can have life, we can do life with them. We have relationships with them, but um, we do it because of the purpose of of, um, sharing Christ. And as long as we're being a, uh, thermostat, not a thermometer. Thermostat sets the temperature. Thermometer just goes with what the temperature is. Right? And that's what Jesus did. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He was a friend of tax collectors and gluttons. And Jesus got Republicans and Democrats. Jesus got, you know, Baptists and Pentecostals all together in one under one roof and made them His disciples and brought them together and loved them all and, and got through all of those lines. But when Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors and gluttons and sinners and drunkards that he wasn't doing what they were doing. They were, they were changing. They were getting saved there. The atmosphere was changing as Jesus did that. But, um, so we want to share truth and love, but we want to stand by the truth. So how do we, you know, the term that I learned here in Utah, this is kind of a Utah lesson for me that I've gotten since pastoring in Utah. But, um, what God told me was that I don't, in preaching the gospel, I don't need to be needlessly offensive. You know, I hear pastors say, oh, the gospel's offensive. And it is. Like, I get it. Jesus did say things like, I've, not, I've come to bring a sword. I came to bring division between you and your family. <coughs> and the reality is, as, 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 as Christ followers, there's times where your decision to follow Christ does drive a sword between you and somebody you love. And Jesus recognized that. He said that. But I don't think that, that that's what the Bible's teaching where we as, as Christians just say that, oh, yeah, the Bible, the, the gospel's offensive and it can offend people, so I'm going to offend them with it, and that's what Jesus did. That, I don't see it that way. I, I, I don't, I think, again, we can't be afraid of teaching the truth, but we don't need to be needlessly offensive. Just offend because we can. No. It doesn't, it's not effective. It's, it's not loving. Tear the truth, but don't be needlessly offensive. And that's, that's just where I'm at. So share the truth and love. All right, let's go to the next one. We see um, chapter 3, the old gate. Hey, highlight these, you guys. Underline these. So I'll give you a quick roundup if you're writing in your Bibles. Verse 1 is Sheep Gate. Verse 3 is Fish Gate. Verse 6, thank you so much, Christian. Verse 6 is um, Old Gate. And then let's jump down to verse number 12. valley gate. um, And next to him was Shalom, the son of Halosah, leader of half the district of Jerusalem, and his daughters made repairs. Look, he had had their daughters out there. Remember in the New Testament the guy had the four virgin daughters who prophesied? So here we have the valley gate and the daughters are there working. And Hanan and the inhabitants of, of Zain. Zeno repaired the valley gate. They built and hung its doors, its bolts, its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate or refuse gate. So the valley gate. Where do we have the valley gate? There on the left. Um, the valley. The valley gate. Um, do we have the, the valleys now? The three. The three valleys there are coming around. I'll show you. The Tropian Valley, is there? Yeah, the Tropian Valley is the closest. The Hindum Valley comes around, the Kidron Valley. We we talk about the Kidron Valley a lot because the Mount of Olives is on the other side of that. Um, this is a picture of the old city of, of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. Pretty similar today, but bigger footprint today of the old city. Out this way is the, is eventually we'll get to the east gate towards the Kidron Valley. Jesus would have spent a lot of time um, on the Garden of Gethsemane out here to, to your right. But he also, the upper room would have been Um, across the Tropian Valley in the old city in this area is where Jesus would have been in the upper room. Um, um, The high priest's house is down here in the south a little bit when he went there the the night that he was um, tried illegally at the high priest's house. But we have there those three natural valleys. The the Temple Mount is um, built up on Mount Moriah, and there's a mount where it's up, and then again you have the three natural valleys. What's fascinating about that is the three valleys in Israel – they make the, the um, Hebrew letter. See the W-looking thing there. It's the first letter in the name of God, the name of God. Um, we'll, we'll maybe talk about that next week. But um, So so the valley gate opens up to the valley. Um, any idea what, what a valley might be in our lives, what we call a valley? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Where do you find that in your Bibles? Psalm 23. So the valley gate represents trials in your life. Um, we, we've done a study. I've asked you guys, encouraged you guys to do this. But um, in the New Testament, um, six or seven times, I, I'm drawing a blank on the exact numbers, so don't quote me on this part. But six or seven times in the New Testament, you'll find the term in Paul's writings, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. Okay. And we've talked about that. I've, I've taught through that and I've taught through some of them. And And I've told you that that's like a catchphrase. And and so, you know, it would be a good study. It would be a fun home study to Google that. Not Google. You could Google it nowadays. But get out your concordance and look up that phrase and find the ones in the Bible that discuss that topic. And look at what they are and write them down. The things in the Bible that God does not want you to be ignorant of, brethren. Okay? Oh, there's a cool picture of the Jerusalem um, time of Nehemiah. All right, awesome. So you have the three valleys. You have the W there. You see the W with the Kidron Valley. And then the Hinnom is kind of hidden down here, actually. So the Hinnom Tropian goes close. The upper room would have been in this area over here. The high priest's house would be down here somewhere. That's the Mount of Olives over there. That's the East Gate. We'll talk about the East Gate, I think, today. Oh, no, we won't get to the East Gate today. Um, so the Valley Gate is the trials. Now, one of the things I, I found in that study and I, I, uh, is that one of the things the Bible says I don't want you to be ignorant about, brethren, in Corinthians is the fact that in this life we're going to have trials. I think it's super important for us as Christ folks. I think it's foundational. I think if the Bible says I don't want you to be ignorant concerning these things, those things that they don't want us to be ignorant about, we should study those things and know what those things and not be ignorant about those things. And, and the fact, you know, Jesus said in John 16, I think this is my go-to, but in John chapter 16... But what's fascinating about this one is that it's, it's a promise of God. But it's not a promise of God that we hang on our fridge or put on a bumper sticker or a magnet, you know, that goes on your fridge. But it is a promise of God. And Jesus said in John chapter 16 and verse 33, he says, These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. starts out good. I've spoken these things to you that in your heart, through Jesus, you'll have peace. It's his heart for you. It's a desire for you to have peace. And he says, there's no but, but we can add it. But in the world, usually but in your Bible is a good word. But God, but God, but God, God. this, cap, this bad thing's happening, but God shows up and, and, and does it. But here we don't have one, but basically the same idea. In the world, you will have tribulation. You will have trials. But be of good cheer. I have overcome. There's the but in the verse. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world but it's a promise of God that we're going to face because again we don't preach this prosperity gospel we don't preach this nonsense that God's only intention for you is to be happy, healthy and wealthy right like not that God is against any of those things in your life but that's not his goal happiness is not God's purpose for your life God's purpose for your life is holiness God's purpose for your life is to be set apart unto him in holiness that's God's purpose the purpose of your marriage is not to make you happy it's make you holy. But listen, the closer you walk with, with Jesus in holiness, guess what you find? Happiness. You're going to find that that's where your joy is. And that's how you find happiness. And that's how you find joy, is by being separate and closer to Jesus and more like Jesus. And so, but, but again, understanding that valleys are necessary. What happens in the valleys is we, we fought, the battles are fought in the valleys. You know, when Satan shows up, when you're going through something, you're fighting. I was just counseling with somebody this week who's going through something and was in tears. And, and I was encouraging this person that you're you're in a valley, but what happens in the valley is that you feel dry. And you feel like God is distant. And, and purposefully, God is distant from you, but you're like the tree. And if the water is always right on the surface, the tree is constantly drinking. So what God does is He makes the water go down another foot, another foot, another foot. And then your roots... In order to, to get the water of the Lord, of the Word, you, your roots do what? They grow. they grow. They have to get a little bit deeper to get that water. And God allows that. That's a, that's a battle you're fighting. But what's the result of these battles over time? What happens when the wind hits the top of that tree? The roots are strong and the roots, the roots are deep. Because God allowed valleys in your life to go down and, and seek Him. And so I was, I was telling this person, listen, in this season, he, it's, it's, it's forcing you, these tears and these emotions in this time, is forcing you to pray more. It's forcing you to trust Jesus more. It's forcing you to seek God more. And that should be the result of this. And your roots will go deeper. And God will allow it. Do you know how God refines you? There's, there's several biblical examples. That's one of them I just used. But the one that we find probably the most in the Bible is, is the refiner's fire, is an example of how God raises children. And, and what he does is he says that you're like the gold. And so you in order to refine gold, he's talking about you and your life and how he deals with you. The, the, the goldsmith turns the fire uh, of the, of the, of the kiln or whatever hot, and then what happens in gold? The impurities do what? They rise to the top. You know what they call them when they, when they hit the top? Scum. That's where the word scum comes from. It's it's the impurities in gold is scum. I had this girl in high school, and she loved the word scum, and she called me scum a million times. Nowadays, I'm like, now thinking of back, I'm like, hey, I'm, at least it's gold. I don't know. <laughs> okay, I would be scum. and better. Some other things I could be. Um, scumbag was what it was actually, but um, so that maybe I was anyway. So I probably deserved it. Um, and then and then the goldsmith wipes off the scum. And then everything's great, right? No, not not exactly. Because there's there's what there's still more impurities, and he's got to get those out. So what does he do? Turns up the heat. Now, it, if the goldsmith just day one just cranks the heat to a million, it doesn't work right. It's because then it, it just it destroys it, right? And it actually doesn't destroy it, but it doesn't work. the process doesn't work. So it's just turning the heat up as the gold can handle it. Um, but gold is indestructible metal. This is a side note. All the gold that's ever been on planet Earth is still on planet Earth. We haven't got rid of any of it or destroyed any of it because it's an indestructible metal and it's still all there. But so, anyways, that that's the goldsmith. That's that's how he does it. That's the refiner's fire. Um, trials does that in your life. So, not, so you know, James said, and these things are crazy, right? Who does this? I don't know, but the Bible says it, so we should get with it. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Yes, Lord's turning up the heat. This is great. He's going to make me gold. He's going to make me more pure. I'm like 10-karat gold. When he's done, I'm going to be 14. And who knows? Maybe before the year's over, I'll be 15 and karat gold. And, yeah, but it's, it's not always, you know, yeah, it doesn't always feel good in the moment, right? But but let – let here's my point. Let God have his, his process in you. You know, it's the process. And God is doing that, and those trials are necessary. Now, um, the valley – uh, Napoleon is a famous story in Israel. Napoleon Bonaparte was in Israel and he was on Mount Carmel and he was overlooking the, um, the Valley of Megiddo. Anybody know what the Valley of Megiddo is, is, is famous for? It's for the, the Battle of Armageddon will take place there in the, um, in the Valley of Megiddo. And Napoleon Bonaparte said, this would be the world's greatest battlefield. And he just saw the natural way that the battlefield laid out and, um, you know, we didn't necessarily need Napoleon Bonaparte's commentary to know that that's where the greatest battle of the world will ever take place is there in the Megiddo Valley, and it, it does set up as just the, the place of the of the battle, because that's where the battle takes place. It takes place in the valleys. You don't fight on the mountaintops if you can. The strategic location is, you know, in a war would be to take the high spots, but you win the, the battles in, or the battles are fought in the valleys. Now, I want you guys to be uh, familiar with this really quickly. Um, you can turn there if you want with me or not, or hang out. First Kings chapter 20. There's a story of King Ahab and the Syrians. And the Syrians are bullying King Ahab. And they, um, they tell him, we're going to take your wives, we're going to take your children, we're going to take your gold and your silver, and anything precious you have in your kingdom, we're coming to get it. And Ahab is bending over backwards. He's allowing the king of Syria, um, a king by the name of King Hadad, uh, here in um, Second Kings 20, First Kings, I'm sorry, First Kings 20. And then King Hadad comes to um, Ben-Hadad, that's what I was missing, I knew mean, there was something wrong. Ben-Hadad comes to the king and he says, okay, I'm sending my guys over and we're getting all your stuff. We want all the loot, everything good in your house. Well, finally, the king Ahab has um, a backbone and decides to stand up against the king Ben-Hadad and, and he 's going to go out, and he begins to seek the Lord, and God is going to deliver him and so they have this first battle, and they have this battle on the hillside and and the, and the Israelites prevail well then the the Syrians go back to King um, Ben-Hadad and they, they, they tell him we we lost the battle, but we lost the battle because their God is the God of the hills, and and he won the, their God helped them defeat the win the battle. Because he's the God of the hills. But if we fight in the valley, our gods will prevail. And so that's what they do. So the next battle they have, they fight it in the, in, the, in the valleys. Well, God, of course, overhears this conversation that the Assyrians are saying that God is the God of the hills, but not of the valleys. And so God sends a prophet to Ahab and he tells him, you're going to fight this battle, and you're going to slaughter them to show them that I am the God of. Come on, y'all! You guys don't listen to Caleb. What, who, who is it? Uh, Lauren Wells, Torn Wells? Come on, somebody! He's God of what? Like, say it like Torn Wells. He's the hills and the. I can't do it. Or else. I would have done it already. God of the hills and valleys. (laughs) Well, yeah, now you know, at least you know, at least you know where that that song comes from. And the story is out of 1 Kings. That's right off the pages of your Bible, that God is the God of the hills, hills and valleys. Um, I am not alone. Is that how it goes? Yeah, something like that. So right there, 1 Kings 20, God shows up and God wants to prove a point. That he's the king of the hills and the valleys. And listen, God is, and that's powerful. And that song is powerful. And it's pulled out of that for a reason to tell you tonight that that God's going to win your battles in your valleys. That God's going to show up in your valleys and he's going to fight for you. And so many times in all these stories, God tells the people, have faith and stand up and I will fight for you. And God wants you to have faith. He wants you to trust in him and believe in him. And God will show up in your valleys and he'll fight your battles for you. And God is the, the God of the, of the hills and the valleys, and He will win those fights for you and those, ba- those battles for you. Such, such a good illustration of um, just God showing up and, and fighting and winning those, those um, battles. He'll bring the victory. One more thing happens in the valleys, and then I think we'll try to hit one more gate tonight. The next one's a big one, the Dungate, but I think we can do it. Um, you know what else happens in the valley? fruit grows in the valley. The fruit doesn't grow up on the mountains and the, the valleys and, and the plains is where um, God is where fruit grows. And so in your life, in the trials, in the, in the things where, you know, you're being tried and, and you're staying faithful. Now, a concept I've, I've taught a ton, I don't really have time to get into it today, but I want to remind us that in the Old Testament, there, there are physical swords and shields and battles that are taking place that we're reading about. We just read about a story in 1 Kings. That in the New Testament, it says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So the New Testament also talks about us fighting battles. But our battles are different. We don't actually take up swords and shields, but the Old Testament stories are equivalent to New Testament truth that we do fight battles, but our battles are spiritual battles. Are, they're kind of on a different front. But just like King David and his men who actually went out and, and you know fought with swords and shields, we, we do that kind of battle. And as we battle there's victory and we're going to have those trials. We're going to have those battles. But in those battles is where we find victory. And in those battles is where fruit is, is really born in our lives. Because again, you know, the battle is us pushing our roots deeper to find the next level of water. And then the victory is that our, our, our root system is deeper and wider and stronger. And now we can handle more wind in the top of our trees. And not only can we handle the wind that's in the top of our trees without our tree toppling, but maybe we can encourage or we can protect the tree next to us, our friend, a brother in Christ who you've been through something difficult and you've seen God come through and be the God of the hills and the valleys. And you can tell them, listen, I went through something similar and God showed up and God's going to do it. And and you can walk people and encourage people and allow your hurts and your pains to minister to, to other people and not to defeat you, because I see too many people who get defeated by these things, and that's never God's intention. God's intention is not to let it defeat you, you know. Uh, one of the things that I, I hate to bring it up, but it's just the truth, and it does illustrate the point. I, I've seen people who have lost children, and, I, and I've never not had to walk through that. And I have much sympathy and great sympathy for that, because I know that's one of the most difficult things in life to walk through. But I've seen people who have been so devastated by it that they never really recovered, they've never really allowed um, healing. And, and it just really battled for lots of years afterwards. I've seen others who have walked through the same thing and, and and by the grace of God Not that it doesn't hurt any less But by the grace of God They've, they've healed it um, as much as possible Enough to allow them then To use that hurt and that pain To minister to other people And that's God's intention That's God's will Amen Alright, one more Let's do one more tonight um, Again, this one's kind of long I don't know if I should try to tackle this in ten minutes But um, let's do it anyways Alright, so then in verse 14, I'm sorry, in verse 13 and 14 we have, um, my my Bible in the the New King James says refuge gate in 13, at the last of 13 and in 14. Did you guys all say refuge or something else? Refuge, refuge. refuge. Somebody tell me something besides refuge. Dung. Anybody else? Dung. So the, the King James word there is dung. Okay? So more literally, this is the dung gate. Hey, does anybody need me to describe? I got some slides to show you what dung is. No, I'm just kidding. I don't. Um, <laughs> um, so literally, um, the term dung is 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 by de- dictionary definition is animal waste, but in the context today of the of the actual dung gate in Israel, it's all. Uh, human waste, animal waste, the dung gate, where the or the poop gate, where is it located in the city? At the bottom, on the south end, in the hind parts, <laughs> in the bottom the gate, the south end. So literally, the dung gate in Israel is the refuge gate, the dung gate, and just exactly was that. Now, um, and again. Remember the the sheep gate is where you literally you bring the sheep for sacrifice at Passover. The fish gate was literally um, function in the city that's where they wanted all the fish to come in because the fish have a certain smell and and and, and trouble with it that they wanted to keep centralized to one area. Um, the old gate is where truth and that's where a lot of the commerce and business and and meetings would happen. The valley gate leads out to 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 the valley and and into the the you know. The opening this way, the dung gate is where all the waste went out. Now, it wasn't until uh, later that the Romans were the first ones to really um, use underground um, pipes and waste and wa- running water and those things to deal with dung. But in these days, 445 B.C. and even up to the time um, leading up was you everything, your waste went into a bucket. Your human waste went into a bucket and you literally took a bucket and you carried it out of the dung gate and you threw it into... The, the the city dump the city dump was located down here in the valley of Hinnom and your clean water you got a bucket and you went to the pool of Shiloh and you brought clean water to the house hopefully you use different buckets to take out the Dungate and bring the fresh water in but that's the way that it would work practically and physically in the city um, and so um, show me the, the valleys again one more time Brian so, down there on the bottom is the Hinnom Valley. Now, there, there's some, some really dark history with the Dung Gate and with the Hinnom Valley in Israel. Um, at the time of Solomon, so the Hinnom Valley, Jesus mentions it in, in Mark, um, and, he, and He uses it as a reference to hell. And, and it was it was a dark place. So, what happened l- later by the time of Nehemiah, they just made it the city dump because of the history that took place in the Hinnom Valley there in the south part of Israel out of the Dung Gate. Now, in the days of Solomon, um, some really, really wicked practices had entered. One of the things that Solomon did was he married um, hundreds of pagan wives, of of um, wives of a different nationality. Now their nationality was not the problem or forbidden. Their spirituality and the gods that they served was the problem and was forbidden. And so you have all of these these foreign women that, that, that Solomon, the king of Israel, in his day is marrying and they're bringing all of this um, idol worship into Israel. And through this time in Israel's history, during Solomon's reign, Israel reached the low of low of lows. And there was a god, lot, lots of them. Molech was the main god. Um, Baal, you've heard these terms, Ma- uh, Molech, Baal. Well, the pagan, the god of the Canaanites, Molech, was... Um, the God of human sacrifice. And not so much human as much as it was specifically baby sacrifices. Much like our practice of abortion today. And so they would take a, a literally, uh, they would fashion a, a, an idol, Molech. He would have outstretched arms. It would be like an outdoor fire. They would build a fire in his belly that would make the hands of Molech molten red hot. And then they would place their babies in the hands of Molech. And, and, and this is a Canaanite practice. The Israelites began and copied and began to practice this in Israel at the time of Solomon. Um, we have, and it would take place here in the Hinnom Valley, um, outside the southern part of the city. Um, look at Jeremiah chapter t- uh, 32. And in Jeremiah 32, um, God is forbidding this. But again, I, I just, I want to bring this out so you guys know that I'm not making this stuff up. this is this is what was going on. this is reality of of where Israel was. now Solomon is before or after the seventy years of captivity in Babylon before, right? Solomon is before the kings, the time of the kings, first and second Samuel kings. that all takes place before they end up in Babylonian captivity. in um jeremiah thirty two verse thirty five it says this. You guys there? I want you to read this with me. Jeremiah 32:35. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of where? Hinnom. Where are we at now? In the Hinnom Valley in the south there? In the Hinnom Valley to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire of Molech. So they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire of Molech. And that was that practice of the Canaanites at the Israelites. Um, we're, were practicing in the time of Solomon, and the Lord says, "I did not command them, nor did I come, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin." So it was an abomination. The Lord said, "I did never commanded this. Of course, this has nothing to do with Christ or God." He said, "It never even entered my mind this kind of practice, this kind of debauchery and evil that the Canaanites were practicing." And, and and this is what they were doing, and they were doing it in, in the name of just whatever convenience. Of, um, but it was a very common. And you know, again, a little rabbit trail. But when when God did tell the Jews to destroy the Canaanites, there was a lot of this type of stuff, and and just as evil and wicked stuff on a lot of fronts that. The Canaanite people had been given over to and they had become a cancer and God said to eradicate them. Well this, this, these practices had, had grown into Israel. It was a reason why I mentioned why did Israel go into 70 years of Babylonian captivity. One of the um, you know, I always mention the 70 years they didn't let the land rest and that's a part of it. But really what you kind of find through studying it and, and the different verses and the different prophets is that the main issue not that that wasn't important in a big part but the main issue was that Israel had gone into idolatry. And into pagan practices. And, and that was kind of the main catch for them going into 70 years of captivity because I don't know how God did it, but fascinatingly enough, do you know what never comes back in Israel's history after the 70 years of Babylonian captivity? The idolatry never came back. The pagan practices never came back, worshiping the little gods and the little idols. It was purged from Israel. After the 70 years of Babylonian captivity. So God was successful in that time of purging Israel from those practices. So because that would take place um, there in the Hinnom Valley, they, they, they made it basically the city dump. So all the waste would go on there. And then, and then Jesus used it as an illustration in Mark um, chapter 9. Because what it, in the city dump in this day, how did they dispose of, how did they deal with the trash and the waste? They burned it. It was all burned. They didn't bury a hole and, and, and put it in there with big bulldozers and eventually so much would rise. They, they burned it. So because they burned it, it was constantly on fire. Now, one of the things that maybe you just miss reading through your Bible, you got to dig a little bit deeper. But in, in a lot of the illustrations that Jesus is teaching and the parables that he's giving, oftentimes, many times, there would be some kind of visual picture or he would be standing in a place, for example, When Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me and I in you as a branch abides in the vine. He was standing in front of the temple in in Israel. And on the temple doors is a big grapevine. It was a symbol of Israel. It was taken from when Joshua and Caleb brought on the back of the two horses, the long pole across the backs of the two horses with the grapes that touched the ground. It became one of the symbols of Israel, this grapevine. And Jesus is standing there. Front of the temple. He's leaving the Mount of Olives. He's on his way, um, or in fact, sorry, I'm sorry, he's leaving the upper room on his way this way towards the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, where he would pray, where Judas would come and betray him in John 15. And he's passing by, they're looking at the temple, and he starts to talk about grapes. So um, that happens a lot in your Bible. Well, Jesus was in the valley of Hinnom, and the fire of the trash and is, is going up. And he begins to give parables, or not not even parables, but truths. He's teaching. We could turn there really quick and then we'll wrap it up. Like I said, this is. we'll, we'll probably have to finish this next week. But in Mark chapter 9, three times in a couple of verses, Jesus mentions hell and the fire of hell. And it says... Um, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me in verse 42 of chapter 9 to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed rather than having two feet and be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. This is Jesus' teaching. words in red. Three times here he mentions hell and, um, in reference, in connection to the Hinnom Gate or the uh, Hinnom Valley. Their worm does not, not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. For it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire or Gehenna, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I didn't tell you what the dungate represents yet. A lot of hell, a lot of bad stuff so far. It represents sin. And, you know, the Bible says that um, that the wages of sin is is death. and And that's the death of hell and that unrepentant sin eventually will, will lead, lead people to hell. And so, um, we're out of time. So we'll pick up there. I got about half of the dung gate to finish next week. Um, and then, uh, we'll try to do a couple more. We get to the fountain gate and the water gate, uh, the next two weeks or the next week. And so let's pray. Father God, we come before you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day. And father, we pray your blessing over Lord, um, our study through Nehemiah and Lord, through this area that we, we talked about the dungate and these things, and, and Lord, yet we just got into the idea that it represents sin. And Lord, we talked about sin and communion tonight, that sin has to be repented of and confessed and dealt with. And Lord, we, we pray, Father, that you would purge us of, of the hyssop and, and the wickedness and any sin that's in our lives, God, and cause us to walk in the Spirit so we will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh, God. And we thank you, Lord, that we might be broken by our sin, God, that it might hurt us, that we're hurting your heart, God, that we're breaking your your commandments, Jesus. We love you and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.